Well, today we finish our series that we've been going through over July and August, looking at the book of Exodus and the life of Moses. Some of the principles that um, God showed through the life of Moses that we can learn from. And uh, today we come across um, in Exodus 17 these two famous incidences, two of the perhaps best example of the, the leadership of Moses of two of his greatest success stories, but also one incident that foreshadows Moses' greatest failure. And we'll come on to that in a few minutes' time. But I want to begin by thinking about the subject of anger. And uh, if we're honest, anger is something that is real to most of us in this room. Those of us who live in Edinburgh, there is only one day to go for our anger to dissipate as the tourists and as the visitors leave our city. Tomorrow night's fireworks will mean the end of those interminable pedestrian traffic jams as people walk very slowly or if they just suddenly come to a stop and stop in front of the the from wherever they are in the city and take a selfie or whatever it is and our frustration levels as residents of the city of Edinburgh will suddenly decline dramatically on Tuesday morning and nobody in Edinburgh will be angry with anybody else ever again throughout the whole of the month of September for any other reason. Anger is a powerful emotion. Somebody has said that most people walk around like hand grenades with the pin taken out. It doesn't take much for anger to explode from every single one of us. I sometimes stand um, at the steps of the office. I'm waiting for a lift, perhaps, and I just watch the traffic going up and down Broughton Street, and I'm constantly amazed, surprised, at the level of anger that is shown by drivers and cyclists at each other. Just on Wednesday, I was uh, outside the office on, on Wednesday morning, and uh, one car cut up another car, and um, immediately a hand came out, and a gesture was made that I think was an ancient Hebrew Celtic blessing, uh, but I wasn't sure that it was. As a society, we've invented new words to describe the anger that we feel. There's road rage, there's air rage, there's even queue rage when people get angry with each other at the supermarket as people nip in the queue ahead of different people. Uh, there is even something called worship rage, where in churches people get angry with each other. The music is too loud, the music is too fast, the music is too quiet, the music is too old. The last two are complete inventions. You you never hear those two. Just last month, one car collided with another car on the A24 in Sussex. Now, you can't think of a, a place that was surely more peaceful and quiet than the A24 in Sussex. But that collision led within 10 minutes to a 79-year-old man being stabbed to death. Road rage escalated incredibly quickly to the death of somebody else. Perhaps like me, you read in the news this week of an Edinburgh man who had a temper problem. He left a four-week-old baby permanently and severely disabled and was found guilty this week and jailed for 15 years. And then, most dramatically of all this week, a sacked TV journalist in Virginia in the States shot two former colleagues 
live on breakfast television, posted videos on the internet of what he had just done, and he described himself in an email as having been like this. My anger has been building steadily. I've been a human powder keg for a while, just waiting to go boom. And there are those horrendous, horrific pictures of the look of complete terror of the female news anchor as she stared looking at the gun. And then I think one paper even published a, a picture of the gun going off and the moment just before she was shot dead and the cameraman was shot dead and the person they were interviewing was critically wounded. Anger is there just underneath the surface of our society. Anger is there, if we're honest, just under the surface in our hearts, in our minds. There'll be different triggers. There'll be different things that will just set us off. But it doesn't take much for our anger to spew out. And many of us would, if we were honest, admit to feelings often of incredible anger and often with surprising speed. Um, I can think of three incidents, one in the life of each of our children, when I responded in a way that was not appropriate. I just lost it with each of our kids in turn. And I can still remember the shocked look. This is before parenting courses. They didn't exist then. But I can still remember the shocked look on each of their faces as they saw what I had done. Now, there were mitigating circumstances. I was under stress. I was sleep-deprived. I wasn't as sleep-deprived and stressed as Kathy, but I was still sleep-deprived. But there was actually no excuse for me responding in the way that I did. And as soon as I did what I did, I instantly regretted it. And that look, that expression on each of their faces has haunted me for over 15 years in some cases. Each time it happened, it happened because I was angry. And I felt horrible afterwards. Anger has even given birth to a telephone hotline in Germany where for two euros a minute, callers can vent their anger and frustration to a paid operator. Uh, it's called Schimpfloss, which is German for swear away. And it's available 24-7. Seven days a week, 24 hours, you can ring this number and you can just have a go at the person on the other end of the line. One of its creators, the entrepreneur Ralph Schulter, says, we don't judge people who are angry. If you're stressed at work, you go home and your partner gets an earful, even though it's not their fault. Anger happens. It's natural. And with us, you can blow off steam, no strings attached. For that, it's a bargain. And apparently, if you ring up and have difficulty getting started, the operators are trained to provoke you. <laughs> um, they'll, they'll start insulting you and swearing at you just to sort of get you warmed up and you get you in the mood. So uh, if you want to know the number of that, then uh, it'll be available on the church website uh, later this week. Now, anger stalked Moses. Anger ran right through the life of Moses, right from early years, right until he was old, 
Again and again, we see anger surfacing in the life of Moses. For someone that we think of as so spiritual, he was so human. And anger occurs again and again in the life of Moses. So there's the anger that led him to murder an Egyptian that he saw mistreating a Hebrew slave. And then he flees Egypt, but he flees Egypt because he is a murderer, and he is a murderer because of his anger. There's the anger that leads him to smash the original Ten Commandments. Quite mind-blowing. The original Ten Commandments that, that are given to him by God on Mount Sinai He's coming down the mountain. He sees how the people of Israel are behaving. They're not behaving how he thinks they should be behaving. They're not acting correctly. That's putting it mildly. And the first thing that happens in the life of Moses is he takes the stone tablets and he smashes them on the floor. These are the Ten Commandments. So next time you attempt, you've got a plate in your hand and you're tempted to throw it against the wall, don't throw the plate, but at least it wouldn't be as bad as the Ten Commandments. Moses smashed the Ten Commandments, and God had to give him a new set because he'd broken the first ones, not because God told him to, but simply because of his anger. And then there's the anger that leads him not to make it into the promised land, as we'll see in a few moments. Exodus 17, that passage that Di read for us a few moments ago, contains two great episodes in both the life of Moses, but also the leadership of Moses. But it also, as I said, foreshadows his greatest failure. And so we have in chapter 17 and verses 1 to 7, water from the rock. Up to this stage, God has already provided for the people of Israel. They've seen manna and quail, we looked at last week, being provided every day to feed their hunger. Now they're angry, and they're angry because they're thirsty. There is no water. Now think what the Israelites have experienced up to this point. They've seen the ten plagues visit Egypt. They've seen the Passover with the angel of death coming over um, Egypt and the firstborn uh, son of every Egyptian and every household where the blood wasn't painted on the doors uh, being killed. They've seen that amazing deliverance from the best army in the world, the Egyptian army. They've seen the Red Sea parted. They've seen the manna and quail come down every single day. They've seen water at a place called Marah, which was bitter, which was undrinkable, made sweet when Moses threw a tree, a twig, a piece of wood into the water, and the water became sweet and they could drink it. They've seen all those miracles but now they're thirsty. They're thirsty. And they're thirsty and angry, not just for themselves, but did you notice that they also take into account that there's no water for their livestock? And that just isn't a question of of cows that they might be able to eat. Livestock in an agrarian society equal status. They equal your legacy. They equal your inheritance. They equal your future. If your cattle die, 
you have no future. If your cattle die, you have no property. If your cattle die, you can make no provision for your family. So there being no water is not just serious for them, but it's serious for everything that they are and everything that they own. But they quarrel. They quarrel about the fact that there is no water. Despite having seen all these miracles, they doubt God's ability to provide. And the fact is that as human beings, we have very short memories. God does something for us, and it doesn't take long for us to forget. It's one of the reasons why we gather as a church week by week, is to remind each other who God is, to remind each other what God has done. Whether it's in songs or talks or prayers, just coming together in this physical act, we remind each other who God is. We need to be reminded who God is because we forget. If we're honest, most of us sin because we either forget or we choose not to remember who God is. If we remembered who God is, most of us would not sin most of the time. But often, when we choose to sin deliberately, it's because we've either forgotten or we've deliberately chosen not to remember who God is. As human beings, we have very short memories. And as we see in Exodus 17, their complaint against God is now escalating. Before, up to this stage, they've been grumbling. And apparently the Hebrew word is a sort of onomatic peak word for grumbling. It's sort of a that's the ancient Hebrew. Um, but it has that sort of sense. It's, it's sort of grumbling. Well, now that's, that's gone up a notch or two. Now they're quarreling. And quarreling is actually worse than grumbling. The sense of the word quarreling in Hebrew means an open, unrestrained doubt. In essence, what the people of God are saying is, are you here or not? Can we trust you or not? Is this really happening or not? It's a bit like some of us yesterday afternoon, we're at, we're at Murrayfield and we looked up at the end of the 80 minutes of rugby and we saw Scotland 48, Italy 7. And we looked and wondered and said, is this really happening? Is it real? Will we ever see the like again in our lifetime? But that's the sense of disbelief that's going on in the people of Israel. Are you here or not? It's open, unrestrained doubt. There's anger in the response that Moses gives them in verse 4. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? And again, in what he says to God, in verse 4, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now, God's response is interesting. God's response, as it always is, is one of gracious care and provision. God tells Moses to take some of the elders, to take the staff that he struck the Nile with, to go to Horeb and to take and strike the rock there. And that's what Moses does. He gathers the elders, he takes the staff, he strikes the rock, and water flows out. 
But the place gets a name change. It becomes Massar Meribah, the place of testing and quarreling. God responds with grace, as he always does, but they mark it as a place where they tested and quarreled with God. Next, in the second half of Exodus 17, is this perhaps very famous passage of this amazing lesson in intercessory prayer. The Amalekites came, verse 8, and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. It's quite an unusual strategy that Moses employs in response. The Amalekites come. He says to Joshua, Take some of the, uh, of the men, go down into the valley, and you fight, but I'm not coming with you. I'm going to go up onto the hill... And I'm going to stand there above the battlefield and I'm going to pray for you. Now, if we're honest, sometimes someone saying, you go and do it, but I'll pray for you, that can be a bit of a cop-out. But that isn't what's happening here. Moses sends Joshua and some of the men down and he stands, and there's this famous picture of, of Moses on the hill overlooking the battlefield with the staff of God in his hand. Remember again, we looked at that passage where God, when he called Moses, gave him the staff, and there was that simple challenge that Gemma gave us in the the all-age service to simply take what God had placed in our hand and to use it. Maybe that's a reminder for someone this morning. God has given you something in your hand And just as God called Moses to use the thing that he had in his hand, God is telling you that you have all you require to do what God has called you to do. Moses takes the staff in his hand. And he lifts his hands over the battlefield and and whenever he's, his arms are raised, this is a sort of endorsement of charismatic worship, whenever his arms are raised, the people of Israel are winning the battle down in the valley. Whenever he gets tired and his arms start to go down, the sort of Anglican levels, <laughs> the people of Israel start to lose and so Aaron and her, who are with him, they put a stone under him so he can sit down. And they hold his arms up all the way until sunset. This is a whole day-long battle. But because Moses prays, the people of Israel prevail in the battle down in the valley. And it has been used again and again as this amazing picture of what it means to pray, this picture of human effort and prayer working together. The people still need to fight in the battle down in the valley, but also the people need to pray on the hilltop as well. So two great lessons of success in Moses' life. But then if you flip forward in the Bible to Numbers chapter 20, we come to Moses' final failure. And in Numbers chapter 20, we find Moses in a similar and familiar position. Now, Moses is this exceptional leader. 
He is an exceptional prayer, as we saw with his hands, arms, staff raised over the people of God as they battle down in the valley, as he intercedes for the army. But Moses is also very human. Numbers 20 takes place 38 years after the events of Exodus 17. 38 years have gone by. And the people of Israel, the Israelites, find themselves in a very similar situation, in a very similar location. God takes them to the edge of the promised land. They send in 12 spies to find out what the land is like. And they come back, and only two of them, two out of the 10, 12, say, let's go for it. The other 10 say it's too dangerous. It's too risky. And the people who live there, they're too big, they're too strong, there's too many of them. We, we can't go in and take possession of the land. So because of fear, because of a lack of faith, the people of Israel don't go into the promised land. And God's punishment upon them is to tell them that not one of that generation will make it into the promised land. Nobody who left Egypt will make it into the promised land apart from Joshua and Caleb, those two spies who said, we should go in. God's with us. It'll be okay. Everybody else, 40 years, 38, 40 years go by, and they all die in the wilderness, the journey that God takes them on. And at this stage, Moses is still going to make it along with Joshua and Caleb. There's going to be three of them who make it. Everybody else is going to be the children or the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren of the people who came out of Egypt. But in Numbers 20, we find the people of Israel back at a place called Kadesh. Kadesh is that place where they refused to enter Canaan. It's the place where they listened to the 12 spies reporting back and the place where they decided not to go into the promised land. Kadesh is the place of the nation's greatest failure. And that's where they are. And they're back in the desert of Zin. You notice in Exodus 17 in verse 1, they set out from the desert of Sin. They're back in the desert of Zin, very close to Massar Maria, the place where they tested God, the place where they quarreled with God, and the place where God had to tell Moses to strike the rock in order that they would have water for them and their livestock. And Moses is still leading them, but by now Moses is 38 years older. We don't know how old Moses was. Um, it may be a literal age that he was 120 plus, we don't know, but just take it from me. Moses is very, very, very old. It's 38 years from when he brought the people out of Egypt, and he was 40 when God called him to go and lead the people out of Egypt. So by now he's getting on. He probably qualifies for a bus pass, at least. But not just that, in the, the 38 years that have gone by in the wilderness, the people of Israel have carried on moaning. They've carried on grumbling. They've carried on quarreling. So not just Moses is, is, is 38 years older, but Moses has had 38 years more of grief, 38 year, 
more years of grumbling, 38 more years of moaning, 38 more years of quarreling. So Moses now is very old, very tired, and I would guess Moses is very fed up. And also, significantly, he's recently bereaved. His sister Miriam has just died. And oftentimes, a bereavement can be times when anger surfaces, sometimes quite naturally and normally and healthily, but sometimes quite disproportionately and unhealthily if we don't recognize it and deal with it. But we find in Numbers chapter 20 a very similar situation. Guess what? The people are thirsty. And guess what? The people are quarreling with Moses. And guess what? They're quarreling with God. Verse 3. They start to say to Moses again and again, as they have done for the past 38 years, and they did just after they'd crossed the Red Sea, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Did you bring us up out of Egypt to die? If we'd stayed in Egypt, we'd have been all right. Did you bring us up out of Egypt because there weren't enough graves to bury us all there? So you had to bring us to this place to find enough ground to dig enough graves for us? Moses, you took us out of a place where there were figs and there were grapevines and there were pomegranates. I remember who's saying this. These are the children of the people who came out of Egypt. The people who are saying this never lived in Egypt. They didn't actually experience what life was like. But guess what? As they've listened to their parents, as they've listened to their grandparents, they've taken on this sort of rose-tinted spectacle view of the past. Oh, back in Egypt, there were figs. Back in Egypt, there were grapes, i.e. wine. Back in Egypt, there were pomegranates. And somehow, over the years, the reality of what life was like for the people of Israel and Egypt has got lost. They were slaves. They didn't eat figs. They didn't eat pomegranates. They didn't go to Waitrose. They just ate slave stuff, bread, if they were lucky. They were beaten, they were killed. Conditions were horrendous. But isn't it funny how over time, people's memories change? When you look back, you forget all the bad stuff, and you only remember the good stuff. Do you remember when? If only we could go back to, it was much better then. This golden age that actually never existed becomes a golden age in our minds. Now again, God responds with grace, Numbers chapter 20 and verse 7. God again tells Moses, take the staff, take your brother Aaron, gather the assembly, speak to the rock. And we're told that Moses does take the staff and he does take Aaron and he does call the people together in an assembly. But then listen to the response that Moses gives to the people. Listen, you rebels. There's sort of small insight into the mental and emotional state of Moses by now. Listen, you rebels. Never said anything like that before. Listen, you rebels. Must we bring you water out of this rock? 
See what's changed? Not just the listen you rebels stuff, i.e. Moses is right near the end of his tether, but do you see what's happened? Do you see what Moses says? Must we bring you water out of this rock? He doesn't say, must God bring you water out of this rock? He's made the fatal error of any church leader of thinking that it's about him and not about God. Must we bring you water out of this rock? And look what he does next. Moses raises his arm. He takes the staff, the staff that he touched the Nile with, the staff that he touched the Red Sea with, the staff that he did hit the rock with 38 years before, and he takes his arm and he takes the staff and he strikes the rock twice with the staff. And still water comes out. There's only one problem. The problem is that Moses was not told to strike the rock this time. God says to him in verse 12 of Numbers 20, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. You see, Moses was told to speak to the rock. He didn't speak to the rock. He takes the staff and he whacks it twice. Water still comes out. The people drink, the livestock drink. But he's not done what God told him to do. Now, perhaps it was because Moses wanted a demonstration of power and strength. Perhaps because he thought it wouldn't be enough to simply speak to the rock. Perhaps he wants to show the people who's really in charge. Perhaps he makes the fatal error of remembering what God told him to do in the same place, facing the same problem with the same situation 38 years before, and he relies upon what God told him to do then. And he forgets what God has told him to do now. Maybe he thinks he knows better than God. But there is this one problem. God told him to speak to the rock, not to hit it. Some commentators have speculated even further as to what was actually occurring when Moses hit the rock. In Exodus 17 and verse 6, God says to Moses, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. So actually what's occurring when Moses hits the rock, both in Exodus 17 and in Numbers 20, is he's not simply hitting a rock. But God is between Moses and the rock. So when Moses takes the staff and hits the rock, he's actually hitting God. And that is what releases the water, both in Exodus 17, but also in Numbers 20. And the difference is that in Exodus 17, it was a time of God's choosing. 
But in Numbers chapter 20, it wasn't. Now, we know that hundreds of years later, God will allow himself to be struck, to be smitten, to be beaten. He will take on fists and he will take on Roman soldiers who will hit the face of God and make the face of God bleed and they will put nails through the wrists of God and they will put a spear through the side of God and the body of God will bleed. But again, that will be on his terms at his time. This is not, in Numbers 20, God's time or on God's terms. This is on Moses' terms and Moses' time. Moses dares to think that he knows best. He trusts in a previous technique that at the time was the right thing to do and was very spiritual. But it wasn't what God was calling him to do now. Now, there are obvious analogies. The church trying to live now in a way that was appropriate then. Saying, well, it was okay in 1662. Why isn't it okay now? The building was okay in the 17th or even 14th century. Why shouldn't it be okay in the 21st? The means of communicating the message was fine in the 19th century. It should be okay in the year 2015. Bonkers. But we live in a nation where the church seems bent on fulfilling that prophecy. He trusts in a previous technique, and Moses ends up hitting God himself. But do you see what God says in Exodus 17, verse 6? It's the issue of trust that disqualifies Moses. It's the refusal to believe God and to take him at his word. And that will mean that Joshua and Caleb will in the end be the only two people who came out of slavery in Egypt to enter into the promised land. Because Moses dies this side of the Jordan. He doesn't cross over into the promised land. So how do we compare to Moses? What lessons can we learn for ourselves this morning? What are the similarities and what are the differences? Well, firstly and most basically, do we need to listen more closely to God? Are we tempted, perhaps, to rely on old techniques or previous experiences? Maybe there was a time we can think back to when God spoke to us very clearly about a particular situation. Now, we're either tempted to look back like the people of Israel and with rose-tinted spectacles imagine that that time was better than it really was, or we've become so stuck in relying on that experience that we're missing out on what God is saying to us in the here and now. Maybe we need to acknowledge that we need to come and listen to God afresh for this time. Maybe like Moses, we need to acknowledge any issues with anger that need dealing with. Maybe, if we're honest, this morning with ourselves and with God, we wouldn't have to push each other very hard. There are certain buttons that we could press for each other and we would just explode. Many of the people in our office, many of the people at our work, even 
the people in our home actually recognize better than we recognize how close to the surface anger is. It doesn't take much, driving a car, riding a bike, for something to happen, one of the children to react in a certain way, and boom, we explode. If you don't deal with your anger, it will come back to bite you. And it will either bite you, or it will bite the people around you. Maybe for someone this morning, this is a call for you to begin that journey of being honest with yourself. It may be that you need to see somebody, you need to see a counsellor to talk through why it is that you're angry in the way that you're angry. What has made you like this? What about your upbringing? What about your schooling? What about how you feel about yourself? How you feel about God? How you feel about life? That means that just under the surface, you're a very angry person. You are like that hand grenade with the pin taken out. And it's just a question of what sparks you off. If you don't deal with it, it will come out. You can suppress it, but only for so long. And if you don't deal with it, it will cause damage and hurt and pain to the people around you, sometimes the people that you love most. It may be that you'd appreciate somebody praying for you or with you this morning. And just saying, God, I need help in this particular area of my life. There's nothing worse. Maybe like me, you've seen an older person. And my experience of, of old people, particularly Christians, is that they go one of two ways. They either become more like Jesus, or they become more cranky. And if they were angry when they were in their 20s and 30s and 40s, when they're in their 60s and 70s and 80s, they're still angry, but they're just worse. Because all the defences have just come down. Nothing sadder than seeing somebody in their 70s and 80s or even 90s getting more and more angry because they didn't deal with anger when they're in their 20s or in their 30s. If that's you this morning, then please, please contact the counselling service. Ask somebody to pray for you. Maybe it's the simple lesson from the second half of Exodus 17, learning again the priority of prayer to see how much depends on when we pray and how we pray. Can I ask you to pray for something? Which, humanly speaking, there is no other way that this is going to come about. We've been talking for about the past five years now with St. Melitus Theological College down in London. And we passionately believe, as a church leadership, that this is the really sort of one of the big things that will shift the church in Scotland. If we can train church leaders differently to lead different types of churches in Scotland, then we believe that it's a strategy, a vision that God has given to us to change the church in Scotland. There's some research coming out this week that will show how desperate the situation is in the church in Scotland. And St. Melitus have, have honed, have refined this way of, of training people in church leadership, which is giving new life and vitality to the Church of England. They're now the largest training institution in the Church of England. They train 145 people now for ordained ministry, most of them under the age of 35. 
And it's brought new life because it's a different way of training people. A week on Wednesday, there is a meeting between the principal of St. Melitus and the principal of the Scottish Episcopal Institute. They're both good people. But humanly speaking, there is no way that these two institutions can work together. Humanly speaking, the idea of a Scottish theological college, Scottish theological college, saying to an English theological college, will you come and help us train leaders for the church in Scotland? Humanly speaking, it's not going to happen. The only way it's going to happen is if God overrules. And the only way that I think that's going to happen is if we pray. So will you pray over the next 10 days for that meeting, week on Wednesday? Pray for a meeting of hearts. Pray for a meeting of minds. And pray that in some way, the Scottish Episcopal Institute and St. Melitus College can work together in the future. Maybe it's anger, maybe it's prayer, maybe it's listening to God, maybe it's not trusting on an old technique or a previous experience. Whatever or wherever we are this morning, we come just as Moses did to a God who always responds with grace. A God who always responds with love. A God who always responds with patience. A God who, even though he himself was hit... And even though Moses had been disobedient, still gave the people water. Do you notice that? I think if I'd been God, I'd have gone, well, you didn't do what I told you to do. You didn't use the technique. You're not getting the water. God still gives them the water. When we come to this amazing God this morning, whatever we're facing, whatever we need to address in our lives individually or as a church, because ultimately we have a God who is hit. We have a God who is beaten. We have a God who is smitten. We have a God who is afflicted. We have a God who is crucified. We have a God who bled. And a God who allowed himself to be stricken at the right time in the right way by the right people so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be changed, so that his life might be seen in our life, so that his kingdom might be seen even through people like us. A God who absorbed the world's anger and still responds with grace and unconditional love. Let's pray together as James and the band lead us in a time of response.